Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, we turn our focus to Australia. And Australia is a vast country, the biggest island in the world and the sixth biggest country in the world. And Australia is roughly the same size as continental USA, which is to say that if you take Alaska and Hawaii out of the equation, Australia is pretty much the same size as the US. However, their populations differ greatly. The USA has a population of well over 300 million, whereas Australia has a population of less than 25 million. And given that it's the same size of the USA, and Alaska and Hawaii do not contribute to the population of the USA that much, there is a huge disparity. And the key to this is looking at the map of Australia. And you'll see that most of the population bases of Australia are along the coast. The five big cities are Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, and they're all located on the coast. And that's that's where the population is. As soon as you get inland, the land is extremely um, underpopulated, very few people living there at all. And that's because of the climate. Australia becomes very quickly very hot. And that's why people are based around the coast, because that's where they can live. The ocean influences moderate the climate, making it habitable. And the vineyards work in the same way. If you impose the wine regions of Australia on top of the population basis, you'll see there is a, a strong relationship. Margaret River in Western Australia is just below Perth on the coast. Adelaide is surrounded by some of the great wine, wine regions of Australia. Melbourne, likewise, is surrounded by wine regions. And then going up towards Sydney is located near Hunter Valley. One exception to this is Brisbane in Queensland, where it's very hot and humid, and although uh, grapes are grown there, it becomes quite difficult. So Australia has this difficult climate where moderating influence is extremely important. In most cases, this is the coast, although altitude can also come into it. And as we look at each region of Australia, exactly what these growing conditions are is extremely important. And of course, there are exceptions to these rules, which we'll uh, look at as well. So Australia was uh, first discovered by the Dutch, rather like South Africa. They called it New Holland. They actually called quite a few countries New Holland, including Brazil. New York was once called New Amsterdam as well. But they never really settled there. They didn't understand just what Australia was. It was this vast landmass. They didn't know where it began, where it ended, exactly where the um, whether it was just divided by water or whether it was just one long, large landmass. And also a lot of ships were lost off the coast. And so there's treated with a great deal of trepidation. But nevertheless, the island of Tasmania is named after a Dutchman, so that, that influence still remains. But it was the British who first settled there with Captain Cook, um, landing there in 1778. And again, they didn't really know what to do with it, how to map it, but it was something that they, they owned in the British tradition of conquering land. But there was no um, real uh, population influx until the British came up with a way of dealing with uh, populate, overpopulated prisons in mid-19th century UK. And so uh, the prison population was so large, there was nowhere to um, house the, the prisoners, and so many of them were located on ships off, off the coast of the UK. So the country needed somewhere to put them, and they decided on Australia. This largely underpopulated, vast landmass, the other side of the world, where they could do no harm, at least to the British populace. So one famous example of this is Magwitch in Great Expectations. He is sent to Australia, but he makes his fortune there, and he comes back a rich man where he funds the uh, 
the lifestyle of Pip, who had helped him try to escape from the British police. Another an example in the novels of Charles Dickens is Micawber in the novel David Coverfield, and he's based on Dickens' father. And he spends the whole novel waiting for something to turn up. It never does. He ends up in debt and sent to Australia because of his debt, where he is actually successful. So Australia was seen as this land of opportunity, as well as a place to send convicts. So it builds its uh, so it builds its culture up from this convict where convicts lived to a place where people could actually thrive and became the land of opportunity for British and that for British people and that remained well until it's still the case today but particularly in the 50, 1950s and 60s as well after the Second World War is a place to start anew. So what about the wine culture of Australia? Vines were probably planted in the 1810s in Hunter Valley just north of Sydney and we'll look at Hunter Valley in this episode a region which really only exists because of its proximity to Sydney, one of, one of Australia's two biggest cities. One of the first turning points in Australian wine was when a Scotsman called James Busby set sail from the UK to Australia and spent six months sailing to the country, writing a treatise on how to grow grapes and make wine in Australia, because he saw Australia with its warm Mediterranean climate having, as having the perfect grape growing conditions that would make wine, wine production a basis of Australia's economy, which was obviously extremely new at the time. And not only that, but it could provide the United Kingdom with all of its wine. And this was a quite prescient uh, prediction, because now Australia is the number one in wine imported into the UK, although it's nearly 200 years later. But his vision of a wine as being an integral part of Australian culture was definitely um, an important one. But no one really, when he arrived in Australia, no one really read this treatise because it's really long, dull and scientific. But it gathered the attention of the Australian government and they sent him back to Europe to properly research the areas of Europe which he felt would be most similar in, in climate to Australia. And he went back and he went to Spain, the southern France, as well as botanical gardens in Paris and London, and took hundreds of grape cuttings back with him to Australia, all of which he felt would thrive in Australia's climate. And one of them was the grape variety, which is now known as Shiraz. And he took those cuttings from the hill of Hermitage in the Northern Rhone. At that time, the legend that that the chapel on top of the hill had been built by a, um, a crusader coming back from the wars in the Middle East in the 1100s well, still persisted. That bit is true, but also the legend that he had planted vines around that chapel and that he had brought those cuttings back from the city of Shiraz in what is now Iran, but then Persia. And this is a legend that persisted until the 1980s. And when James Busby took those cuttings, the great variety was known as Saraz, Skira, Skiraz, and other variants of Shiraz. And so when he took it back to Australia, it settled on Shiraz because of that story which he reported. The French name Syrah is actually a late 19th century variant of those names. So the name Shiraz is actually, in many ways, a bit more authentic, although based on myth. Unfortunately, James Busby's cuttings were neglected by the Australian government and nothing was really done with them. However, the modern-day plantings of Shiraz and Chardonnay do date back to his original cuttings. And also, when he came back, this is the early 1830s, he wrote a much shorter pamphlet on how to grow grapes and make wine designed to give the new either release convicts or entrepreneurs coming to the country a template on how to uh, be economically successful in making wine and that was much more successful because it was much more readable so he is seen as the founding father of Australian wine 
Another really important figure in Australian wine is Dr. Penfold, who moved to Adelaide in the 1840s, and he set up a medicinal practice, being a doctor, but the basis was making fortified wine, which he sold as medicine. And I absolutely agree with that premise. A glass of sherry or port is an ideal way to get over a common ailment. And then his, um, his, his daughter and um, son-in-law took over the business and made it into one of the biggest in Australia. And by the time of the First World War, about a third of Australian wine was Penfolds. So it's absolutely huge. And everything that Australians drank was fortified wine, heavily influenced by the, the popularity of fortified wine in the UK in the 19th century. Australians took it even further and everything they drank was fortified. And that persisted up until after the Second World War. And after the Second World War, soldiers returned from Europe with a taste for the dry table wines of Europe rather than the fortified wines which were drunk around Australia. And so as a response to that, Penfold sent their assistant winemaker Max Schubert over to Europe, particularly France, to research the, the wines made there and how they could be made in Australia. And he went to Bordeaux and was heavily influenced by what was being done there, came back and started making wine in a similar way, albeit from Shiraz instead of Cabernet or Merlot, and also using American oak instead of French oak, because that's all he, his company could afford. And the grapes he used for this uh, wine came from around the Grange on their property in Adelaide. And he made it for five years until 1955, and af after which uh, Penfolds specifically forbade him from making it because, in the words of one of the board directors, no one wants to drink dry port. But despite being uh, banned from making it, he continued to do so in secret in the cellar at Penfolds. And then in the early 1960s, the wine started showing up in Australian wine competitions, and wine competitions are very important in Australia. And it was doing extremely well. And so the Penfolds board were a bit perturbed. Here's this wine that they had expressly forbidden from, make, from being made, was now winning competitions. They summoned Max Schubert and said, well, can you start making this wine again? And he said, actually, I've been making it all this time. So instead of uh, chastising him, they made him the head winemaker and encouraged him to go with the Grange project. And that became the first great wine of Australia, domestically receiving attention attention and then internationally receiving great attention also. And that was part of the transition from fortified wine to the dry table wines, which are common in Australia as, a, as around the rest of the world. And that laid the basis for Australia's entry into the international wine market, which happened in the 1980s and 1990s, when Australian wine really made a scene because it was clean, inexpensive, fruity, approachable and immediate as opposed to French wine, which was often not clean because winemaking practices were not as high as they should be. And also there was a complacency in the French wine industry. And also the wines might not weren't as approachable and fruity. And so Australia just, also Australia had great marketing and great labels. That's why it made a huge splash on the international market and really helped change drinkers' um, perceptions of wine and their habits. The disadvantage with that is that now consumers associate Australian wine with more inexpensive stuff rather than the high quality stuff. And that was exacerbated in the USA when in the early 2000s there was a brand launched solely for the US, US market called Yellowtail. And that was hugely successful. Again, it's that example of great branding and also of really understanding that there's a gap in the market and how to exploit it. And uh, so Yellowtail made Australian wine the number one import in the USA, which is something that Australian wine had as a long-term project, but it's achieved almost overnight. But it also meant that the US consumers only associated Australian wine with cheap, 
inexpensive, fruity, slightly sweet red wine. And that is still a common perception in the US, and I think that's true in many other wine-drinking countries in the world. And so Australia now is trying very, very hard to overturn that image, spending a lot of money in marketing to show that it does produce extremely high-quality wine. And like any country, there's a huge range from that $5 yellowtail all the way up to Grange or Hill of Grace, another great Australian wine, which costs around $800 in the US. And so it's all about education, educating consumers, about the range of Australian wine and also that it's not just big, brash and bold, but there's also many different climates in Australia which produce subtly different styles of wine. That's how Australian wine has got to where it is today. In many ways a huge success story, but also some challenges in how to market those wines. The most historical region of Australia is Hunter Valley. And this is also the most peculiar of all of Australia's regions because it really only exists because of its proximity to Sydney. It's a hot, humid, almost subtropical climate, really not ideal for the production of high quality wine. But because Sydney's so nearby, it has a ready market. The most peculiar thing about Hunter Valley is that it produces one of the greatest styles of wine in the world and also one of the most individual. And this is Semillon. So the climate of Hunter Valley is hot and humid and also subject to very uh, wet weather, especially during the harvest coming in from the ocean. And then it has a double whammy of storms coming in from continental Australia to the northwest. And so um, traditionally the grape growers there were always very nervous about the grapes exactly because they wanted to pick them healthy. And so they'd usually be picked early. And with Semillon this would be an extreme example because the grapes would be susceptible to those storms coming from continental Australia. And so the growers would be on the lookout for this first sign of storm on the horizon. And as soon as they saw it, they would rush out to pick the Semillon which usually meant a very early picking with very high acidity, but low levels of sugar and also low levels of phenological ripeness. So not very much aromatic com complexity. And so they would make those wines, uh, bottle them almost immediately. And these would be wines with high acidity, low levels of alcohol around 10 to 11% and not much complexity, very neutral in style. However, they discovered after putting some bottles to one side and just not really doing anything with them, and then opening them a few years later, that these wines developed an extraordinary complexity, maintaining their high acidity, but developing nutty, honey, real texture to them, and lots and lots of complexity. And so Hunter Valley Semillon is what, this most peculiar style, because now the wines are made more deliberately, knowing what the, what's going to happen to them, but without really knowing how that's going to happen. So the wines are made the Fermented in stainless steel, aged in stainless steel for six months, bottled immediately. There's no lees aging, there's nothing done to the wines. They taste almost like nothing at first, but then after five years, they're incredibly complex and really wonderful wines. And yet still no one really understands why this happens, but they um, really are extraordinary. And they're really drinkable as well, because the, you have the mixture of the high acidity as well as the complexity that has come from maturing in the bottle. So really unusual wines that really defy explanation because the grapes are picked early, nothing's done in the winery, and yet they develop in the bottle in the way that they do. And those wines are not especially expensive. It's just being able to find the, the aged bottles because when they're young, they're pretty, they're pretty boring. And yet there is the potential to become a truly great wine in there. So Hunter Valley also produces Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon. And Shiraz in particular can be and so these wines can also be interesting, but very difficult, different from the style of 
wine you'd expect from Australia because they're not being picked late in a warm growing season, they're being picked earlier in a more rapidly uh, ripening season. And so the wines will have the fruitiness to them, but also have an earthy game, gaminess to them without the uh, huge phenological ripeness that you'd expect from other range of, regions of Australia. So again, it's a paradox. Hunter Valley is Australia's hottest wine region, and yet it produces wines quite different from Barossa Valley, for instance. And so that's an overview of Australia's history, how it started 200 years ago and where it is now, as well as Australia's historic wine region, Hunter Valley, which is a region which really defies explanation. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's Wine and Drink.